0: So, Patty, we got our interview today with Jeron Rice on how he has landed his first uh, bank referral relationship. Pretty interesting, I think.
1: Well, you know, Jeron, I think this is he, – he must be our frequent flyer. I think this is yes. probably the second or third time. I think it's the third. And every, yeah. yeah, and every time it's like he just – he blows me away with what he's been doing. I mean, yeah, yeah. He, this is really, if you are, if you're wondering about bank relationships, definitely listen to this. He has some really good insights.
0: Well, and I always love it because we, we go, you know, to the kind of the core, the practical stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And so he's not an expert on bank relationships by any stretch. This is his yeah. first one, but it's just having this conversation and talking about what it took to get this first one and how he's, you know, activating it and stuff. So I think it's a really good uh, conversation. And then tell us about the insider's
1: report, Patty. A new, uh, I guess we could call it a revolutionary approach uh, to contactless payments that leverage the cloud. Uh, Both MasterCard and Visa are rolling some things out now that I think our listeners will be very interested in. Hopefully it'll be the death of the dongle. That's, what we're, that's over time. what we're hoping, right? Over time, yeah. So, over time, maybe another year or two, who knows. But, yep. And James, uh, what about our question from the field? Yes,
0: yeah, so I had a really interesting question about um, waiving the surcharge. So if we're doing compliant surcharging, can we charge the surcharge on some credit card transactions and not on others? And of course, this extends over to non-cash adjustment as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm talking about that and multi-mid accounts um, in questions from the field. Great stuff, James. Let's get going. Here we go.
2: Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey,
0: everybody. Patty and I are back here with our good friend, Jerron Rice, who is the CEO of Magothy Payments. How are you doing today?
3: You know, better than I deserve. How are you? Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Mo <old> Dave Ramsey. <laughs> yeah, I like
0: that. I was just about to say that. That's good. So... Right. uh Yep. so obviously uh, John we've covered you know so many different topics and today we're going to get really practical we've talked about bank partnerships with a couple of other people from kind of a higher level today we're going to really get down to the nitty-gritty details you know what does it really take to form a bank referral relationship where a local bank is actually you know providing you a data or sending you referrals for businesses looking for payment processing services so I don't think you really need any introduction on the podcast here obviously you've been on so many times but give us a little bit of a feel high level what are these banks experiencing right now? When you go and talk to a new bank about a referral relationship, what is the current marketplace experience for a bank looking to capitalize on payment processing with their clients?
3: So one of the biggest problems that I've noticed is, you know, that there's a huge disconnect between the, the bankers at the branch level and the merchant services department, right? Sure. So a lot of times it's, it's outsourced either to another company completely or like with the, the, um, the big regulated financial institutions, it's, it's part of the bank, but not really. And so right. you have these bankers that, you know, they have these clients, they've worked hard to get these clients, they, they want to offer credit card processing to their clients, and then they have to put them in a queue for an 800 number to have somebody get back to them mm-hmm. and then right. continue the sale. It's not something that is handled from a sales and pricing standpoint at the branch level. And so the, the, the bankers, the feet on the street, they lose control over that process. And a lot of times it's, it's not a favorable experience for their clients and it's damaging the bankers relationship with the client that they work so hard to get. Right. Sure. Yeah.
0: So, so
3: what I hear you saying
0: is you have the actual bank manager of that local bank. And I know what you mean, because even for our business, I mean, I, I talk to our local bank manager on a fairly regular basis, whether it's, you know, right. payroll protection program now, or it's, you know, opening up a new bank account for a charitable thing or whatever. You know, we end up doing a lot of things together. So I think what I hear you saying is the bank manager is one that has the relationship with the local merchants. They have kind of that feet on the street, that presence where they know what that person might need from a payment processing perspective or have some idea, but they have very little control or. Involvement in the process of setting them up for payment processing
3: through the bank—is that what you're saying? Absolutely, and, and it's it's sure. one of those things because it's not it, it almost nothing is done at the branch level. So these bankers don't understand the the pricing structure, the pricing mm-hmm. model, right. whether the pricing is fair or not. They're basically given this: we offer competitive rates, call right. these people, and they'll get you set up. Um, and they're they're left you know in the dark about what's actually going on.
0: Now, do you, I mean, we should just jump kind of right into it because I'm kind of curious. I mean, is that a fixable problem?
3: I think it could be. Um, If if the the banks put more effort into having someone from merchant services, like in merchant sales on the ground for the bank, I think you could definitely work around that problem. I mean, obviously I, you know, I have a vested interest in them not figuring it out <laughs> <You> know, as, <laughs> sure. a, as a third party, but no, I sure. mean, that, that's, that's one of those things. Like if, if, a if a bank were to, you know, let's say you had an agent that, you know, has been in the, you know, in the field for a few years and understands the industry fundamentally right. in and right. out and the bank were to hire that agent to work for the bank and, and handle that in-house, you could clean up a lot of those, problems, sure, but right. they just sort of have this outsourced to a call center kind of mentality. Sure. Um, and the the problems just persist. It's
1: well, really because, you know, it's, it would seem to me that it's really because card processing is sort of like an afterthought for them. Right. I mean, they're much more interested in selling them cash management and deposit services and, Oh yeah. And if you want credit cards, yeah, we can help you out.
3: Yeah. That's it it saying, literally right? is like the last you know, they've opened the bank account, they've got everything else. As the merchant's getting ready to walk out the door, they're like, Oh, oh, oh wait, do you want credit card processing? Right. Yeah, something here, sign here, sign here. All and right. then they send it off. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I guess though the question
0: I still have, John, is is have you been able to establish bank referral relationships? Um, and if so, did you have to overcome this? this issue and, and figure that piece of it out or have your referral relationships been more on like the local level where they weren't having that problem or how have you been dealing with that?
3: Yeah. So we, we've got documented one, um, local bank partner, um, Arundel federal savings bank. And that took a few years to develop. And honestly, the, the, the biggest hurdle for them was the fact that at the time we had only been around, Magnity Payments had only been around two or three years. Right. And this is a bank that's been in the community for a hundred years. Right. You know what I mean? Like that was sure. their biggest thing is is I was new, they were more established. Sure. Um, and after our, our first meeting, uh, which we we got connected through the the Chamber of Commerce, uh, like we talked about at the last episode, right. a lot of right. these banks have, you know, bankers and branch managers and executive vice, some vice presidents in the Chamber of Commerce, and sure. so these people are readily available. Sure. And we had a meeting; we discussed it, and um, at the time they ended up going with uh, another provider from out of state. Okay. Um, just because they were larger and had more been more established. established. And a couple years into that relationship, they came back and said, "This is not working right. for us." Like. We need you to come back and, you know, sure. kind of go over things with us. And after that, they ended up uh, signing on with us. Sure.
0: So I and I want to circle back around in a little bit to maybe even competing with the banks, right? Because that's obviously another, another you know, avenue of conversation here. But let's talk about this specific one. So they came back around. They reached out to you. Um, you know, did they have the same issue of centralization or in their case, were you just able right off the bat to say, Hey, this is what I do. You work with me personally. Or like, how did you deal with that kind of specific pain point of things being centralized with the merchant services department and the managers not having much say in it? Was that the case there?
3: Yeah, it, that was, that was part of the problem. Another part of the problem was this was a, a large company that I won't name, um, but they, they have 1099 agents in, in this area. And for a long time, the company went through a couple of mergers, okay. and they lost all of their sales reps. They didn't have a single sales rep sure. in the Maryland area, and so our the the bank partner was sending referrals to them, right? And their points of contact were either no longer there or didn't have feet on the street to get to the people. And so imagine you're you're uh, a bank. And you're talking to a merchant and you say, Hey, we've got this great partner that offers merchant services. I forwarded your information. They should give you a call soon. Right. And that never happens. Right. You know? And so they were getting frustrated because they had all these referrals that weren't being contacted because this company out of state didn't have any local reps that could actually service this area. So, so what you brought to the table then was the locality, the community,
1: outreach that you already have. And then so presumably they now can say, Hey, go to Magathy; they're our partner and they'll have you set up. And I'm presuming
3: that that's a fairly quick process. Absolutely. And so like through this, the, the entire, like two years that they were with another provider, every chamber of commerce event, you know, every local networking event, while they were dealing with those pain points, they would see me Mm -hmm. at these local events. And it was just kind of a constant reminder, like, Hey, Right. Our guy, our, our company won't even show up, but this company is always, always right, right here. Yeah. yep.
0: Yeah. That's really interesting. I So, and I know that we've talked before about kind of the networking approach, but how important do you think that was for you to kind of be able to, you know, see them and, you know, I'm assuming you probably connected with them at those events and, hey, how's everything going? And Anything I can do for you? Do you think that was a big part of of them gaining that trust that they needed to get away from the big company and go, you know, with the, the local provider? 100%.
3: I mean, it's, it's in that when you're talking about the, the local aspect, right? So we, we joke about it. You've, you know, you've seen it on Facebook and Instagram. I have a huge truck. I've got a Ram 3,500 2020 night edition. It's wrapped in our company colors and everything, Right, right? It's literally a, a rolling billboard. Right. And they see me out and about all the time. I'm at networking events and there's there's an extra layer and an extra level of accountability right. when you know that this is someone that you see them mm-hmm. regularly. For for another company that has no reps in the area, that is located right. out of state, there, there's very little accountability there. Right. And so just getting FaceTime with these people over and over and over again and seeing our portfolio grow and seeing the accomplishments that that we've been able to... Uh, you know, accomplish and, and things like that, I just gave them confidence to know that even though this is a small company, even though they've only been around now six and a half years, right? Um, right. They knew that I am personally a, a person of integrity, and they they recognize right. the reputation that we have earned right. in the community. So they had the confidence in in moving forward with us. Well, so, yeah,
0: I really liked it. I want to dig in on this. I know uh, after this, I know Patty has a question about kind of more of the, you know, getting the deal done. But I I first want to zero in on this for one more second. So, you know, I think an important point to mention is a lot of whether it's you're trying to sell a larger merchant, which I actually think that process is very similar to getting a bank referral relationship. At least it has been for me. Um, You know, whether you're dealing with, you know, a larger business or trying to get a, a bank relationship, you know, John, have you seen this where They recognize that they have a risk. Like if they make this decision, it's the wrong decision. That's a problem. Like this is how Mm -hmm. they get their money. This is a big deal. But a lot of times they don't see that you have a risk, you know, and I Mm. think what you're talking about is that reputational risk. So I agree with you on that. And what I what I found was, you know, I wasn't the big networker like you are but I had my network. I didn't go to networking events, but I had, here's my clients. And you know, one thing I would do with a lot of these larger places is I would say, look, here's my client list. I'll give you a list of 15 or 20 of my larger clients. Here's the name of the contact I have, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd say, you know, call any of them that you want. And I think when you do things like that or when you show up at networking events, isn't it kind of the takeaway from them is if this doesn't go well, it's not only going to hurt us, but it's going to really going to hurt the reputation of Magathy Payments, and clearly their reputation is important to them. Rather than the way some companies seem to approach it, or, or individual agents, especially, is they're almost kind of hiding a little. You know, it's like I
2: yeah. don't want
0: anybody to know. I'm, you know, in case things go bad, I don't want anybody to know it's me. <laughs> How, have, you, have you seen that that kind of that that belief in their mind of like, wow, you know, John's got some reputational risk at stake here.
3: Yeah, definitely. And so it's funny because. I'm loyal to a fault often. Right. So uh-huh. when we, when we got this partnership in the works and everything, you know, happened um, I showed my level of commitment to them and moved all of our business accounts to their bank. Right. Uh-huh. So th- this was one uh-huh. of the things that, that I, that I did with them sure. and it was, we both kind of approach the the relationship as this is new for both of us, right? Mm-hmm. And we're going to learn how to be better at our business through this relationship. And so, like one of the things that people love about Arundel Federal is like they their customer service is a, as good as it gets, right? I yeah. mean the, the 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 branch manager at at the the Pasadena location that that I go to, you know, she's been at the bank for eighteen years. And she's like 35. You know what I mean? So it's (laughs) like, they have employees that have been there for decades, because they treat their employees well, their clients stay there for a long time. One of the things one of the areas that they recognize that they needed to improve that I have helped them with are some of their business banking products, because as a as a savings bank, they were more consumer focus. Right. right. And so when we had this conversation about, listen, if we're going to partner, I want to be able to refer businesses to you. Right. 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 So for me, a lot of my clients are home improvement contractors. What kind of products do you have, like lines of credit or unsecured loans that a contractor could use? Right. And they were like, well, we don't really have those. And I said, okay. So that's we need to talk about that. Right. So we scheduled a meeting with the president of the bank and all of their high level vice presidents and sat down and I talked to them and I was like, listen, you know, um, we have, a I, I'm purchasing a vehicle for the company. Right. And it stinks that you don't offer commercial vehicle loans. And right. then I have to go to, I'm, I'm partnered with you. You do all of my other banking, but it stinks that I have to go to another bank to get a commercial vehicle loan because you guys don't do commercial loans. What do we need to do to go to, for you guys to be able to offer commercial loans and what do we need to do to, and so we went through a list of a number of banking products for small businesses that they didn't offer that I was explaining to them. These are the things that my clients need because Mm -hmm. what I was able to explain to them also was, you know, we handle the the DDA change requests for our clients and we get right. several a month. So we know that our clients have moved banks before. Right. And if sure. we were to recommend them, especially the local ones, that's right. not a hard sell for us. Right. But at the same time, I want to make sure that they're going to have the products that my clients are going to need. And so we literally had those, those kinds of powwows, to figure out how they could improve their product offering for uh, the small business community, and that's how our partnership has continued to grow because we're both learning and improving what we do based on the experiences that we've had with each other. Very cool. Very cool. And I and
1: and 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 in that way, you're really you're bringing more to the relationship than just payment processing.
3: Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's another lo- it's another layer of stickiness. Right. Right. And so it, it takes For them as well as you. Yeah. It takes a relationship from transactional in nature to more of like, like you said, a, a partnership. Right. Right. So like if, if, if uh, one of the examples that you, that you, that I always like to use is like, if you're a, a, consumer of a, uh, at a restaurant, you walk into a restaurant and there are, you know, paper towels on the floor because someone washed their hands and threw them in, and missed the trash can. If you're just <laughs> someone who's eating lunch there, you're not picking up paper towels off the, off the floor and putting them in the trash can. If you're a partner in that business, you're put, you picking up those, those paper towels, towels right. you fix it. Yes. Right. right. And so that's right. one of the things that if we're committed to each other, like, I want to help you fix what needs to be fixed on your end. And likewise, I want you to help me fix what's what's wrong on my end, so that both of us can can improve and grow from this relationship.
1: So, so explain to me, if you wouldn't mind, Jaron, the, the the legal out the legalities of all this in terms of agreements. I mean, is this you know is this a complicated legal process? Do you need to bring attorneys into this, or there's like po- boilerplate type of agreements that you can use?
3: Yeah. So it's it's always. You know, when, whenever there's uh, partnerships of this magnitude, it's always important to get attorneys Im- involved. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, however, our, our ISO, I reached out to them and said, hey, you know, I'm looking at establishing some bank partnerships. Do you guys have a, a partnership agreement? Because our ISOs has more attorneys than they know what to do with. And they were <laughs> right. like, yeah, here's our standard agreement. And so I read through it, shared it with my uh, attorney. And I was like, can we cause they're, they're in a different state. I was like, can we change the, the legal names and change the states right. and put it on our letterhead and still have this applicable? And they were like, absolutely. Right. So we did that and, and basically had that as a template. And then once we were ready to proceed, we sent it over to them and they had their attorneys review it mm-hmm. and come back with, with questions if they had questions. And, and, and when they don't have questions, they, they sign it and send it back. And it's, it's good. So So it's a pretty simple process then. Yeah. I mean, for us being a a sub ISO and and having a relationship with an ISO that had that already. Right. Right. It it was it was easy. Uh, If you're an ISO and you're getting started and you don't have it, then you're going to need to have an attorney. Right. Put that that agreement for you.
0: So, yeah. And I like that. I think, you know, to me, I think really the most important question that I would have about all this. I think it's exciting. You've got your first banker for a relationship. How long have you had that? for a relationship roughly? Uh,
3: about 18 months okay.
0: Uh, okay. officially signed. Okay, good. Okay. So so yeah. my question is this, and I have some really specific opinions on this one as well. i sure I'll follow up. But, you know, the big problem I see is even when you jump through all the hoops and you get them, you know, it's like, I've got a bank referral partner. It's like, wow, I finally made it, you know. Then you end up getting like one mid a month from it, if that I've seen a lot of agents. So I'm curious what have you done? What have you found that's been successful or maybe not so successful at actually get converting this referral relationship into deal count?
3: Yeah. So um, it's funny you bring that up because in the beginning, after it, after it happened, uh, it didn't net the, the, the kind of referrals that I guess I had in mind for right. it. Uh, and I heard there was something that I heard you say on one of the podcasts about asking for their, their customer list. And so I went back to him and said, Hey, you know, can we get a a list of your, your business customers and reach out to them directly? And initially it was like, um, (laughs) we got to talk to legal and see if we can give you that information. Right. And I was like, okay, well just, I mean, as part of the partnership, they did the vetting of us financially, you know, all all of that stuff. So they knew they could trust us before they signed the agreement. Right. Uh, And then when they came back, they said, yeah, Legal said that we can, we can do that, you know? So that's uh, something that we're working on right now is actually mapping that. out the, the, the campaign as to how we want to approach it, because we're going to go from, um, you know, we're going to start with, with mailers and the telemarketing list where my assistant, we're going to be mailing out the, the, the mailers and then following them up with, uh, sure. with a call, um, just with everything COVID it, it, it's not a huge bank, they've got five locations in our county. Sure. Uh, so it wouldn't be terrible to to you know do a face-to-face visit with with these clients. Yeah. but sure. with covid and everything, we just right. kind of want to be as respectful as possible sure. and yeah, do sure. it in a sort of non non-contact kind of kind of way.
0: I think it's I think it's really interesting and and I'll kind of share my thoughts on that a little bit too because I, I think this is actually to me the most important. The, the two most important parts are, you're you're in road to getting the contact in the first place, right? Which, um, you know, depends on what you're doing. In your case, you did the networking. For me, I was more of just a directly reach out person and work my way up the ladder and I have my referrals and references. So however you do it, you got to have an in road to get the meeting, right? Um, Then you have to be a business person that is able to close the deal. You know, if you, I think too many people in our industry think of themselves as a salesperson rather than a business owner. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that, you know, that's fine. And and I think being a salesperson is respectable and I think it's amazing. But if you want to get a bank referral relationship, you have to be a business owner. You just do. Um, yeah. you, you can't be like, I'm a sales guy. It's like, no, you, you're doing a deal. You're a business owner. You're the CEO of the company, whatever it is. So I think that's crucial. But then I think the third part is getting through those hoops is more about how you see yourself, um, than it is about any specific tactic or strategy. So you have to be confident, you know, all these kind of intangible things. But, when we go past that and you get the deal, the key to me is you've got to gain access to two things. You've got to get their data and you've got to get their reputation, right? Those are the Absolutely. two things you got to get. And in my experience, the, the challenge is there has to be a lot of frank and honest communication between you and your referral partner. And this doesn't have to be a bank. This could be an, uh, you know an association. It could be anything. Mm-hmm. Any referral relationship that you get don't get excited about that referral relationship until you have the data and you have the reputation because those are the yep. only two things that matter and they matter when they're together most. Now the sure. reputation is great if you get their permission but the thing is when I to be real clear it's the list I think is obvious the data get the data the reputation means do I have your permission when I call a business owner to say Hi, I'm James Shepard, and I'm calling you because my company has an exclusive partnership with XYZ Bank. They asked me to give you a call. You know, how far can you go? And one thing I've learned the hard way, I actually had a really nasty experience one time with a a 400 location um, franchise where, you know, I thought I had their agreement to reach out to their franchisees. Um, But but their perception of it was I had the ability to reach out and offer a special deal for their franchisees, but I thought I had permission to reach out like I was working with them, and Mm -hmm. I didn't in their mind, you know, and then that became a mess. And so I I learned and future relationships were a lot better. That one, I was able to turn it around, but I never quite recovered from that, that lack of trust that happened because you've got to be very careful. People take their reputation very seriously. They take their brand name very seriously. They take their data very seriously. And so I think, you know, at least in my experience, I've done probably 20 pretty significant referral relationships, whether that was local banks I've done or associations. And it's always been, I learned after that first one of, You've got to you know show them the email you're going to send. Show them the call script before you do it. And you do want to leverage their name in a in a respectful and honest way whenever you can, but you've got to get their approval. Yeah. but it's like getting, you know, gaining access to their reputation and their data. I don't know your thoughts,, uh, you know, John, but that to me, that's that's the whole ball game.
3: I agree, one hundred percent. and that that's where we kind of are in the process, sure. to be able to show them this is what the the marketing efforts towards their clients is, is going to look like so that they can vet it and approve it before we we launch hardcore mm-hmm. in in that direction.
0: Sure. Sure. I've got one more question uh that a little bit off the wall, but just something I want to ask. Yeah. So so yeah, obviously it's exciting you've got this first bank referral relationship and it's exciting to talk about that development. But let's talk about something that you've been doing successfully for a long time and that is overcoming the objection of I'm currently with my bank. So now we're competing against the bank, right? So, you know, I think one of the most common when I look at, you know, Facebook groups like the one we have and others, one of the most common questions that comes up is how do you overcome the objection? I'm currently with my bank. Talk a little bit about how you overcome that objection so that we can see not only how to partner with the bank, but also how to compete with them.
3: Yeah. So, um, I, I kind of look at it from the standpoint of like when they say i'm 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 already with my bank, like I start salivating because i'm and I'll tell them, listen, banks typically aren't competitive because they don't have to be. you know, mm-hmm. and I go through that example again I like that line. when you walked in there and you signed all the paperwork, you know the the merchant services was probably a throwaway question. Do you want to process credit cards? Yeah, sign here, 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 and here. They don't go over pricing. They don't go over. And it it really helps that at least from, from a sales standpoint that all of our, like most of the time when, when people are working with banks, they're on a either a, a tiered pricing or they're on an enhanced buyback enhanced rate recovery yes. pricing model VR. where okay. they were sold on the qualified rate. Right. Right. So I've got all these home improvement contractors that'll, swear the until they're blue in the face that my rate is 1.79%. Okay, well, let me take a look at it. Well, your effective rate is 4.1%. Because that qualified rate for swipe debit cards that you never get because you key in 100% of everything, right? Like you're not benefiting from that. And so, you know, I'll show them from the number standpoint. And then also, like a lot of them, you know, not to bash them, but a lot of these uh, large regulated financial institutions were, were using like First Data as their, their back end processor. Right. You know, and so when I explained that if they're at SunTrust and they say, you know, well, I, I use my bank and I'm like, well, you, you do, but you don't. Right. You know, SunTrust uses First Data, which is Wells Fargo and Bank of America. So it's not. Right. Really in-house the way that you think that it's in-house. I mean, they're, right. they're basically a glorified middleman like I am, except they've got much higher margins than I do. Right. You know, and so when you kind of when you can explain it to them that way yeah. and explain it to them and let them know, I was shocked how many business owners are under the the misconception that changing their merchant account doesn't mean changing their bank right? Because right. I, I've I've had questions come up where it's like, well, yep. do I have to open a, a separate bank account for the merchant money to go right. into. And, you know, things that you would, I, that I thought were just understood. And I was like, no, you can, you know, all I need is the routing and account information of the bank that you're at and right. the funds will deposit right. into that account, Yeah, you know, the next day, just like they would if you were processing with them.
0: Yeah. You know what? It's funny what I started doing uh, as I, I used to kind of start off with the whole Uh, not argument, but you know, the whole kind of rebuttal and all this, what I started doing eventually was when they would say, I'm already with my bank, I would say, which bank are you with? And they would say, whatever. Right. And I'd say, oh, well, you know, the good news is with our credit card processing, you can switch to us and keep your existing bank account. And I would just try to ignore it and move on. And it was funny about a third of the time, to your point, they really, that was their concern. And yeah. about a third of the time, yeah. they're like, oh, really? Okay, tell me more. And it's like, okay. You know, and the other two thirds are like, no, no, no. I mean, like, I don't want to switch because <laughs> I have a relationship. And then you're like, okay, then you do the whole thing you just did. Yeah. Right? But and it's like
3: changing banks sucks, man. Like, yeah, it, it does. It, oh, absolutely. It
0: really does. It does. Yep, absolutely. So, well, man, I'm telling you <laughs> what, a lot of good information. I think it's so interesting. I always, I always enjoy having you on the podcast because- we you know, interview, obviously, a lot of um, executives in these larger companies and things. And I think while your company is scaling up and growing, I think you still got that you know, kind of feed on the street mentality and the face-to-face interactions and seeing it at kind of that level, um, I really think it's important for agents since hopefully a lot of them are going to get out there and start looking for that, you know, that, that first bank relationship. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, to me, it was pretty simple. I just called all the banks in the area. And I started the process. Most of them said, "Call us back in two years," "Call us back in a year," "Call us back in three years." And I'm like, "Okay." And I did, and I yeah. got a lot of them. So, so one one other know? thing
3: that I that I wanted to to add yeah, sure. before we before we wrapped up is one you you have to kind of have the mindset of you, you have to live off of squirrels while you're hunting elephants. Right, and yeah, these bank yeah. partnerships are the Elephants. the long game. Oh my! That yeah. it will take six months, a year, two years, three years to yeah. solidify that, and so you still have to keep your eye on the ball of each individual merchant that you can and right. growing the portfolio that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is, it doesn't have to be because honestly, in my opinion. I feel like if you have, if you've built your own brand, right, right. and you have your your own reputation that you've built, mm-hmm. it makes it easier for you to engage in that kind of partnership than if you are like a ten ninety nine agent for right. some super ISO, right. You know, because then they kind of look at it as well. You just work for them, right? Right. So one of the things that I would encourage, if you're in that situation where you don't have your own brand and, and you're not really interested in, in going that route, is take the time and build relationships with the individual bankers that you come in contact with, because even though, you know, Arundel federal is our only official bank partner, we've got at least a dozen bankers that are local Mm -hmm. that work from, you know, some of them work for like bank of America, Wells Fargo and these large banks, right. Right. That their, their bank would never sign a partnership with us. Right. But they personally don't trust their clients to their own bank, right? So we get mm-hmm. referrals all the time yeah. from okay. these individual bankers, and they they won't even email us from their their, their, their corporate email account. Or, they'll send or, right. us a personal email from the right. person. Like, they'll, hey, they'll call you. Call this person, I told yeah. them that you would take good care of them, and and so on. Right. And so we yeah. have a lot of unofficial partners that send us referrals that way because they trust us yeah. and we've earned their respect yeah. and built our reputation. And they, they ultimately, at the end of the day, they view it as this is my client and I want what's best for my client. Right. Even if it means Going a relationship else. outside yeah. of,
0: I think that's a, I think that's a really good book into the beginning of the conversation where we were talking about that issue of centralization that, you know, hey, maybe the solution short term, especially for the smaller, you know, agent operations, small ISOs, is just form a relationship directly with those people that care most about the small business. And you never know, you might get some business thrown your way. So, John, uh, always uh, such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your insights as always. Yeah, yeah, man. Like much, I bro. said,
3: any any time you need me, I, I got I got plenty to say. So <laughs> <laughs> we
0: share that in common. So it's awesome, man. Hey, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. You know, Patty, as we're talking about Valor Paytech, our sponsor, so many times we've reiterated this point, but it can't be said often enough that. Valor Paytech is processor agnostic.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important, and it kind of goes to our questions from the field this this week in terms of, you know, how do you how do you segregate out how you're using cash discounting and surcharging? Right. How, how do you segment it in your cu- you know customer segmentation? Right. Right. And I think more and more, as
0: I predicted, I don't know what was it maybe a year, probably at least a year ago, I predicted that you know more and more cash discounting and surcharging was going to become a technology decision, not a processor decision. Agreed. Um, we're definitely there as far as a standalone terminal. Let me be really clear. In my opinion, okay, so this is I'm biased. Obviously, this is our sponsor, but I believe this with our sponsor or without. In my opinion, if you are selling standalone terminals to merchants for cash discounting, and you are choosing your processor, your platform, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. in order to do that, I think yeah. it's a mistake. I think it's yeah. a bad yeah. idea. I don't think you should do that. Why on earth would you do that when there are processor agnostic solutions, meaning, you know, you can put a Valor Paytech terminal out there, and it doesn't matter. You can put them with TSIS. You can put them with, you know, whatever platform. It doesn't have to be this one, and they're locked in. So why wouldn't you do that?
1: Wouldn't you also correct me if I'm wrong here, James, but because it supports multiple mids, you could conceivably use multiple processors, right?
0: You know, I don't know for sure, but I mean, I, I would think that's a possibility at some point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sure if they do that today or not, but I, I think ultimately, certainly the idea in the is, cards, right? It's in the cards, and and again, I think the idea is just why? What you know, if the flexibility is available, you know, the the I can't remember the name of that the terminal. I just came out with the new one. It's like that terminal. The cost per terminal is actually less than most of the other competing terminals. So right. it costs less money. It's an omni-channel, fully integrated solution with the, the back end, the virtual terminal, and all that. And it's processor agnostic, meaning you can yeah. set them up with one and then a, a year later decide to switch. and You know what I mean? If there's some you have in your contract that allows you, you to switch, you can flip them. Right. Like, so I, to me, it's like, why on earth would you not place a terminal like that? So all that to say, if you want to check it out, head over to ccsalespro.com slash valor, V-A-L-O-R ccsalespro.com slash valor v-a-l-o-r and request your free demo today i think you'll like it
2: this is questions from the field brought to you by ccsalespro.com the leader in merchant sales training and technology if you're an individual merchant sales professional visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all access pass If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard.
0: So today, Patty, I'm going to talk about surcharging compliance and the ability to waive the surcharge fee. Okay? Okay. So this is a question that came. I'll put a full video out of the conversation I had later. But um, I talked to a um, uh, actually an ISO owner about this, and it was a very interesting conversation. We ended up having a follow-up and then an e- email exchange later because he asked me a question that really kind of stumped me. Um, it surprised me a little bit. So the question revolves around compliant surcharging. So for those who maybe aren't not familiar, there maybe they're more into the cash discounting side of things. Surcharging, compliant surcharging, meaning compliant with Visa, Mastercard rules. Right. Means that we're not adding the surcharge to debit or prepaid transactions. We're only adding it to credit card transactions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the 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 specific situation here is the. The uh, ISO has a large merchant and they have kind of two sides of their business, but it's all one entity. Um, one okay. side does large, like business to business type transactions that are two and three and four thousand dollar average ticket. Then mm-hmm. they have kind of this retail side of their business on the construction kind of side. They have like more retail of coming in and buying like faucets and things like that. And okay. this, where average ticket is now 70, 80, 100, 200. Okay. Mm-hmm. So. I don't remember which side it was. I I think it was the, the larger side. They wanted the ability to say, Hey, on these larger transactions, we don't want to charge that surcharge on the credit cards,
1: Mm -hmm. but on the small side, you know, small average ticket we do. So pretty much for like, you know, um, customer service, trying to treat the big guys a little bit, give them a little special attention, right? Yes. And so,
0: you know, he brought this up and I was kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> why not? You know, mm-hmm. and he had received information from someone else who said that Visa, you know, the Visa rules actually prohibit that. And really? I was like, what? So huh. here we we looked into it, and it turns out, at least again, I'm not an attorney; this is not legal advice. But um, we see nothing in the Visa Mastercard rules that would in any way limit the merchant's ability to waive the surcharge. Okay I, I'm
1: with you on that. I, I mean I've read those rules many times. Yeah. I cannot recall anything where it said that.
0: And in fact, it even specifies that you can change the surcharge based on the car type if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it, it seems to show more flexibility really and not less. Um, right. And I think that's very important. I, I really believe that um, you know one of the ways that that the idea of cash discounting and surcharging are going to break into these, Um, verticals, these business types where it's not really prevalent right now, is this idea of having a multi-mid account. Mm -hmm. So the multi-mid account is where you have one, so a mid is a merchant ID number, so it's the idea of a merchant account. You have one merchant account set up for traditional processing. Maybe it's interchange plus 20 basis points and 10 cents or something. Um, And whenever they are not doing the surcharge or not doing the non-cash adjustment, it goes through that mid. Mm-hmm. Then when they're running the surcharge or the non-cash adjustment in the case of cash discounting, it goes through this other mid and that mid is set up at you know flat rate 3.5% or whatever it is. Um, and kind of separating these two things out. And so that's becoming more and more common. It's interesting because multi-mids existed primarily for you know your hair salons and right. where they had multiple, you know, servers Hairs. or yeah, right. Um right. You know, multiple stylists. Um, but now that same technology is being used to say when you're doing the surcharge route it to this mid, when you're not doing the surcharge route it to another mid. So, um, you know, companies, uh, like Valor Paytech, the sponsor of our podcast, you know, they mm-hmm. have this, uh, technology of multi-mid. And so I think that as that develops, I think it's going to be uh, more, and more prevalent, but I'm hearing a lot more about it, Patty. I really am like, I get a lot of questions from agents about this. There was a big stigma early on that you can't do this with cash discounting, you know, um, mm-hmm. And there's a major player that I won't name here that was kind of a leader early on that was really against it. And I, I argued with him about it three or four times at length. And um, I always felt like I won. He always felt like he won the conversation, I think. Um, but, you know, his argument was, you know, there are consumer protection implications here. You can't just willy nilly charge one person, one price and another person, another price for the same item without justification. And, you know, my argument was, yes, you can. <laughs> yeah, you can. I mean, yeah. I see
1: that all the it's, time, don't you? I yeah, mean.
0: yeah. I said, you know, it's just all about, you know, you know, to me, it just take it to the extreme. Can you imagine a law that, or, or some kind of a rule that said you're not allowed to charge your loyal customers a better price? Right. Well, That's, then now you can't yeah. do loyalty programs. Like, so to me, it's like, if, if you can do it for one reason, why can't you do it for another reason? Um, so my philosophy is, I think the Supreme court in expressions, hair design, you know, if yes, people are always, you know, I was talking to a guy a couple of years, yesterday, I think it was. And, and, you know, he said, man, I remember you talking about cash discounting three years ago and everybody, you know, he said, I, he, he even thought, you know, in six months Visa was going to shut it down, you know? Right. And I've been right. saying for three years, they're never going to shut it down. And they're not, they still haven't. Um, I'm keep waiting. What was it? Remember Patty, what was it, uh, in the fall? Didn't you keep hearing about first of the year, away. I think going it was away. almost
1: a year ago, but still. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's like,
0: it's going away. First of the year. They're yeah. just watch. Visa's coming. like, no. And the no. reason that they're not, you know, is because I think of the Durbin Amendment, but I think even more is Expressions Hair Design, that that yeah. Supreme Court case, because it's like this game has already been played out and they know that they lose.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If it gets mm-hmm. to the Supreme Court, they are, in my opinion, they're guaranteed to lose. It, it's yeah, just done, it's a done deal. The Supreme Court already said, you know, merchants have a right of free speech and mm-hmm. you can't limit their speech. And they considered how they communicate their price speech. So right. to me, it's already a done deal. They didn't say anything about debit versus credit in that ruling. Um, nope. And so I think it's this game's already been played and it's already Visa and the, the card brands have already lost. So they're positioning and imposturing, But I think taking action at this point is going to be. Very challenging if if even possible.
1: Well, especially, yeah. I mean, if it's even possible at this point, you have so many people doing it now. I yep. mean, yep. it would there'd be a revolution, not only amongst ISOs and agents, but amongst merchants. Right. So many merchants that love
0: these programs. So mm-hmm. I feel like um, you know, thinking about it, be you know, you really need to be more creative. I mean, I'm talking to to agents that are selling like huge, like 10 million a month merchants on cash discounting and and mm-hmm, on surcharging. Mm-hmm. And they're being very creative. They're, they're positioning multi-mid accounts. They're you know, working with the merchant to say, let's talk about this. How can we make your customers happy? Um, what can we do differently? Can we add a wave of the fee button to the terminal? Can we create a multi-mid account with a gateway? You know, what can right. we do? Um, and they're getting more creative and they're going after these big accounts. And these big accounts are, are willing to pay a premium. I mean, they're not paying 4%, yes. but they're paying 3 to
1: 5 which is a lot better than they would be paying otherwise. Oh my, you're getting 80 basis points on 10 million a month. Uh-huh. You know, that's what I'm a saying? nice piece of change. That's
0: $8,000 a month in residual. You know, that's That is a nice piece of change. So I think I think we're seeing this shift and so the thing I really want to tell everybody is I guess just from my research and opinion, I talked to this individual, I talked to some other people, I have not found anybody that's found any shred of, of any Visa ruling or MasterCard ruling or or state laws or anything that would say if you're going to charge a a surcharge or a non-cash adjustment that you can't waive that. To me, I don't see any compliance issues with waiving it at all. And I right. think it breaks down, you know, it's, it, it weakens the only barrier to getting the sale, which is the merchant being concerned that their customers are going to be upset.
1: Well, yeah, you know, and I was just 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 when you were just saying that, it kind of occurred to me, you know, when you go and you buy a new appliance, right? Mm -hmm. Go to Best Buy or another appliance store, and they'll say, okay, for anything over $500, we offer free delivery. Right, right. It's the same thing. It's the same thing, yeah. And I think think that speaks to a larger
0: point, which is – what the supreme court realized when they made this ruling of expression's hair design versus the uh, state of, the attorney general of the state of new york they realized these implications and right. it's like this is a slippery slope we, we you know h- how are we going to legislate the way that a merchant can communicate their price right. you know it's one thing to regulate the price itself to say you can't price gouge people or deceptive practices things like that but it's another thing entirely to say that the, you know, government is going to legislate how people can communicate their price
1: and even the card brands, you know. Right. And that's well, why. Especially th- the card brands. The government would be bad enough, right? Right. But right. how do you know, suddenly you're going to have a private company dictating how a merchant should run his business? No, that's not going to happen. Right. And so I think, it's, I think
0: it's a very slippery slope. I think the Supreme Court realizes it. I think the Durban amendment starts to codify it and quantify yes. it a little bit better. And I think mm-hmm. that the car brands recognize that and they just, I don't think they want the debate. I don't think they want the the problem, the argument because yeah. they're, they're already on pins and needles. Please don't regulate interchange. Please don't uh-huh. regulate interchange, you know? So I think they're, they're not in a position of strength when it comes to this. Um, no, and I, I think ultimately they're making a fortune off the backs of these merchants and, So the merchant wants to pass along to the consumer, there's nothing they can really do about that in the end.
1: Nothing they can do. You're right. Good stuff,
2: James. Thanks for bringing that up this week. Well, thanks, Patty. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading the Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com.
1: Hey, everybody. I wanted to talk this week about a MasterCard announcement. Um, It's uh, launched its first ever U.S. deployment of what it calls Cloud Tap on Phone. Now, I have to pause a second here because you may remember I spoke a few months ago about a similar thing that Visa was doing. Okay. And Visa's is called Cloud Tap 2 phone Oh. Okay. <laughs> what, a, what a
0: shocker that MasterCard is doing the same thing as Visa just a little bit Gee, later. Gee, what
1: a shocker, who right? Who would have thought? Yeah, who would have uh. thought? But uh, it's interesting because, you know, in a way, I think it revolutionizes um, contactless because it's a cloud-based platform that makes contactless payment acceptance pretty much a no-brainer for small merchants that don't want to spend the time and money, okay. you know, on hardware, software to support contactless. Right. Basically, a merchant downloads an app that's supported by their acquirer, and after registering and selecting their their depository bank, they can start accepting payments. I mean, basically in a matter of minutes, you know. Yeah. Um, And obviously it's, you know, it's a solution and aims to address these consumer preferences for contactless, which we've talked about before. Right. You know, I thought this was really interesting. Uh, MasterCard did a survey um, in which they found 46% of consumers had swapped out their top of wallet card for one that supports contactless. 46%. 46%. And I have to tell you, I'm one of those 46%. Wow. I only have one card that's contactless. And these days I would much rather use it and just mm. pay that balance off than use one of my debit cards that I have to insert. insert. Huh. You know, um, wow. yeah. And uh, and what was also interesting is that 74 percent of the of consumers said they plan to continue using contactless payments even after this. St- pandemic is over
0: oh sure and, and you know even if they wouldn't say that you know they will it's, you know they're going to right? once you it's get become, started you know you don't have it exactly
1: yeah. yeah you know so Mastercard's acquire is um partnering with global payments mm-hmm. and uh the uh, payment gateway way nmi oh yeah
0: we've had okay. an, we've had nmi on here before
1: we have we have they're a very yeah. interesting company i've talked to them you know on yeah. several occasions um very innovative and they're working with um to support uh, tap-on-phone acceptance by Computer Engineering Group, which is a California-based IT services firm. Okay. All right. And CEG's ISO is B-I, uh, BNG Payments, which is based up in North Dakota. Okay. Um, you know, and as I said, Visa has tap-to-phone which I reported on back a few months ago. Right. Um, it says that that is now up and running in about 15 markets around the globe, and is spe- okay. expected to be piloted here in the U.S. this year. Mastercard said its tap on phone is being piloted in about the same number of markets, but that the CEG pilot represents the first quote live deployment of its technology anywhere in the world. Hmm. You know. Um, these cloud-based port platform, you know, I think a lot of people understand this, but I'll just sort of give a quick little synopsis here. I mean, they basically replace all the heavy lifting around payment acceptance, right. you know, routines that are typically handled by software, you know, in the in the devices or in the uh, phone or, or POS devices like authorization and processing. And they build, of course, they build on EMV, right? Um, you know, the whole chip, the EMV chip, and mm. um, but of equal importance is that they eliminate dependency on Bluetooth or audio jack connections. Okay. You know, which are prone to con- connectivity issues, Sure. which then can create, you know, transaction issues, downtime, you know, right. things like this. And, it's, and, it's, that, this and it's, in- that, it's
0: that one extra thing that the merchant needs to buy or get mailed to them or whatever too. Exactly.
1: Right. Yeah. Just what, you know, instead of just going on and getting it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Brian Thees, who's chief strategy office at BNG, uh, there was an interesting quote from him in the in the MasterCard press release. He said, With cloud tap on phone, we're reducing potential failure points to just a smartphone and a phone and a data connection, as well as reducing upfront costs. Uh, and he said, This will be the future of mobile card acceptance in um, card present transactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary Kay Bauman, uh, a, a big a big shot at Visa made a similar uh, assessment. She said tap to phone could be one of the most profound ways to reinvent the physical shopping experience. Mm. Now, obviously, in addition to the appeal to small merchants, these type of solutions are going to have some appeal for larger merchants as well. You know, like those that dispatch employees out to do line, line busting. Right. Sure. those that do uh, curbside delivery or uh, mm-hmm. pay-on delivery, you know, like grocers and so forth.
0: I mean, not maybe, but it's, don't you think, though? I mean, it doesn't sound it, – it sounds like they're trying to make this technology in some ways kind of stand on its own a little bit. Yes. Whereas it would need to integrate for a larger merchant. I mean – It's going to need to integrate. Ex- yeah, exactly. Right, which but, it, it sounds like maybe they're going that direction with using, like, NMI as an example. So if right. I'm understanding it right – it sounds like there's the potential that a point of sale company that already integrates with the NMI gateway Mm -hmm. could somehow leverage this technology to enable their merchants to use a phone, right. You know, and still maybe have the integration with their, their point of sale. So I think to me, the interesting thing is, you know, basically if I'm square, I'm kind of terrified of this.
1: That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. You know, if I were square, I'd be really wondering, you know, right how I can hang on to these guys. I would definitely be
0: making a a call to MasterCard to see, or, you know, Visa and trying to get, you know, get integrated. But, you know, if I was Square, I'd be nervous just because, and again, though, I think Square, their, their future strategy, they obviously are coming directly for the throat of the, the ISO world. I mean, they're going after the larger merchants. They're going after the point of sale. They're, they're acquiring serious technology. So I think they're trying to escape from the world of the micro merchant anyway. Right, so I think they would be nervous about losing that part of their business where they definitely have this their stronghold. Right, um, but I think for the general, the agent of the ISO, the the question becomes more: we need to follow this to see what integration comes from it, so that it could eventually be implemented and kind of like look for this as a potential integration with. Yeah, I wouldn't right. be surprised if we saw, you know, uh, Clover or, you know, some of these other systems that had something like this in 24 months or 36 months, you know.
1: I think you're right. I think probably 24 months, 36 months is a, is a lifetime yeah. now in, the, in, in some of the technologies we're dealing with, but yeah. but still, you know, yeah. and I, I, you know, just as a, as a sort of a, a PostScript, MasterCard says it's making its pre-certified uh, cloud POS software development kits. Available in multiple cloud environments, oh, you know. Wow, for, well, there you go, right? For fintechs and acquirers and yeah, processors, like we sure. said, that's well, what's going to make the difference. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So and they are
0: then, they are opening it up. So that's going to be it'll it'll take root a lot faster. And it's, I mean, let correct me if I'm wrong. It didn't sound to me like Visa was maybe quite as uh, ambitious or open about their integration stuff.
1: Maybe they are. I just didn't notice. Yeah, it. I mean, the only thing Visa would say is that they're fast tracking product availability through a right. pre-certification process right. and that's going to slash the evaluation process but right. you still got to do the integration so yes yeah i mean they're always competing against one another i mean basically yeah. you know you see one from one you see but i do have to admit that the similarity in names is really interesting to me A, did they not think that, you know, somebody else was, you know, the competitor was going to come up with a similar name? Or B, is it that they just want to make this a more universal concept, capping and phone. Right. Capping And, and phone.
0: Probably what's in my guess is I wouldn't think it's outside the realm of possibility that this whole concept might end up getting spun off into a separate company. Mm-hmm. Where they combine the Visa and MasterCard version of this and create sure. a, you know, a universal API that can integrate, you know. So I, I think the big takeaway, at least for me, is I'm looking at this as, you know, maybe the concept of the dongle on the phone, hopefully that's on the way out. Yeah. Which I think yeah. everybody, micro merchants in particular, but I think everybody would be very happy with that because it's really annoying. I mean, anytime you set a merchant up with one of those things, it's always a, a frustration because it's usually such a small merchant anyway. Right. And next thing you know, of course, they're the ones calling you from the farmer's mart on Saturday at mm-hmm, six in the evening mm-hmm. to let you know that their little dongle isn't working. Can you come down here and help me? It's like, oh, my word. So yeah. I think uh, if the dongle, the death of the dongle, I don't think would make anybody in our industry upset.
1: <laughs> I think I might have told you a story. One time I was in a bakery and they had one of those dongles on their thing. Yeah. And I I asked them, so how many times have you had to replace that? yeah she's like oh about once a month <laughs> like and you still use it i mean and
0: they're like 50 bucks you yeah, know they're not i mean cheap. retail you know you can get them cheaper obviously in bulk but i mean for a merchant they're usually paying 50 bucks for one of those things you know
2: yeah
0: Yeah. So, anyway but uh, yeah that's very interesting i think uh i would imagine we'll probably have more insiders reports along the way with this because probably news sure. is going to start popping up of hey this company integrated this integrated so i think we'll all be yeah. very interested to see how it develops
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting and it just sort of goes along with, you know, the changes we're seeing in the marketplace. Yep, absolutely. Well, as always, Patty, thanks for your insights. Sure thing.
0: This episode of the Merchant Sales Podcast was brought to you by Valor Paytech, the technology company that is revolutionizing cash discounting and surcharging with innovative features like dual mid support, waive the fee options, and even adding non-cash adjustment charges to TIPS. Now all of this is made possible by a variety of technology devices and solutions such as gateways, tabletop point of sale devices, and features like SMS text messaging and e-invoicing all with cash discounting in mind. Valor PayTech, Bold Ideas, Smart Execution. Make sure you head over to ccsalespro.com slash valor, V-A-L-O-R, ccsalespro.com slash valor, V-A-L-O-R. Schedule your free demo today and watch videos and learn more about this amazing technology solution.
2: Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time.